Welcome, everybody, to this month's installment of Real Bad, the Breaking Bad podcast of the Enter the Real World podcasting network. We are done with Breaking Bad as of last month, and so starting this month and going forward, we are going to go back in time to the Breaking Bad spinoff series and a prequel show, Better Call Saul. My name is Kevin Ford. I am enjoying Better Call Saul for the second time, going through with a little more of a fine-tooth comb this time around. And my other host, Jerome Cusan, is navigating the series just like he did with Breaking Bad for the very first time. Jerome, how are we doing today? Coming into this year, Kevin, I had two uh, two shameful shows that I had not watched, uh, one of them being Breaking Bad, another of them being Better Call Saul, and I am very proud to say that I am rectifying both of those in 2020. I know that 2020 has been a, a really crappy year for so many people, and all of you out there, you better be wearing a mask when you go outside, or I will spray you with uh, disinfectant, just to let you know. But I'm, I'm proud to say that I've been watching uh, two really, really good television shows, at least, and watching other things as well, in addition. But uh, we could talk about that later. Kevin, it's uh, it's great to hear your voice. We are smart enough to where we record, you know, some shows in advance and we bank some things. So Kevin and I have not actually recorded in a couple of months. So has anything happened in the last couple months that you know of? Not that I can think of. Just been pretty much the same since we recorded in. I think if I saw right, we did our El Camino podcast in mid-May, and I think the world's been about exactly the same since then. Nothing nothing I can think of that's gone on. Can you explain why I haven't got my mail in three weeks, though, Kevin? Well, I mean, you do switch addresses between uh, two, two cities in different states. Perhaps that's the reason, and no other reason I can, I can think of. Well, Kevin, it's weird. I looked at my mailbox, and the only thing I found was a cell phone... And that's that was it. It was weird finding a cell phone in a mailbox. Cell phone, maybe a key fob, some other things. Yeah, it was weird. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to what to say about that or what to make of that. But we, we move forward. And I will say that judging from a lot of people I've, I've spoken to, obviously, television watching and some things like that have gone up a lot in 2020 because of shelter in place and quarantining and all that good stuff. But podcast listening in general seems to be taking a hit one of those things where it seems like there's quadruple the amount of podcasts and a quarter of people listening to them. So if you're still listening to us, we do genuinely appreciate it. We understand time is a premium. The activities that people may have like commutes and working out and things like that, or podcast time may have been spent is now no longer a thing. So if you are still listening to us, we, we genuinely appreciate it. And, uh, I truly do love Better Call Saul with all my heart. So I'm so excited we're doing this, finally getting into it again. A lot of this is far more fresh to me than than uh, Breaking Bad was. So, And this is your first time experiencing, and I'm, again, like Breaking Bad, I'm excited to have it through your fresh eyes as I am re-watching all of this. And uh, I'm ready to have a lot of fun. But first, before we even kick off things, I got a couple questions for you. Let me interrupt you for just a second, Kevin. Sure. I, I do want to say... It's really obvious in watching the first season of Better Call Saul that this was all a long con. And that's a tease for the listeners because we're going to explain why this has been a long con. 
a little bit later. Sure. Okay. So my first question for you is even before not taking us out of the world of Breaking Bad, what are your thoughts on prequels and spinoffs just in general? I think when it comes to prequels and spinoffs, it's always really difficult to create something else. And I think there's there's a couple ways that a lot of different IPs have done it. I think when people think of the prequels, they generally think of the Star Wars prequels. And that is for better and mostly for worse because the, they have a very negative reputation. I think a lot of people have tried to resuscitate the way that those movies were executed. I still don't think they're very good. And I think that the inherent problem with prequels is when you are dealing with characters that you already know what happens to them. Like, we know what happens to Mike. So it's going to be, it, it might be really difficult to have that character be on the show for five seasons because we already know what's happened to him. And I think that same thing has happened uh, with a lot of prequels, unfortunately. I think that the best, one of the best prequels that I've ever seen is a movie, is a Star Wars movie. It's, it's Star Wars Rogue One. And I think the reason that that prequel works is that it was all characters where we did not know necessarily what their fates were. And I also think it was just a really good, like, singular story that was told that that made sense, that connected directly to A New Hope. So I think that that is a prequel that works. And for the most part, I think prequels don't work. I think they are really hard to pull off. And the same thing for spinoffs. And I think in this case, what you, bo- you have is both a prequel and a spinoff, and that is going to be something that is tremendously challenging. And I can't imagine why Vince Gilligan decided to do it. I'm sure bringing a Brinker's truck full of cash probably helped him make that choice from from Sony and probably from Netflix, presumably as well. So I can't imagine just the level of difficulty that they had in putting this all together. Uh, For me, I think... One of the things that is really special about the spinoff, because, you know, there are a couple spinoffs that I've really enjoyed. Angel is probably the spinoff that I've enjoyed the most of all of them. And Frasier, to an extent, I think also is an outstanding spinoff. The reason that those two spinoffs work is because, yes, they are taking characters from Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Cheers, respectively, but they're putting the characters in new situations and the tone is different enough to where it doesn't feel like it's just a rehash of previous episodes of Cheers or anything. And in fact, with with Frasier, I think some of the weakest episodes were the ones that had cast members from Cheers on them because the tone of Frasier was just so different. And Angel, even though I really like Angel a lot, It took a while for that show to really separate itself from Buffy the Vampire Slayer just from a tonal standpoint and figuring out Los Angeles versus Sunnydale. And so coming into this, I think one of the things that I was very curious about is because Better Call Saul has to take place in Albuquerque, or most of it does anyway. And so I was just wondering, like, how are they going to be able to pull this magic trick off of making Albuquerque feel the same yet different and also taking a character, Saul, who was somebody who is very much a supporting character. In fact, he didn't get introduced until almost the end, about halfway through season two. And generally he wasn't in, 
he wasn't the star of any episodes. He really didn't get the focus placed on him that much. So that's something I was very curious about coming in is that how are they going to pull this magic trick off of turning a supporting character into a main character, getting us invested in Mike's character, and also how are they going to bring in new characters that we can invest our time in? It's interesting you say that because eventually at some point, and this wasn't Vince Gilligan who did this, but one of the writers said, why don't you pull for us all of the footage of Saul Goodman and Breaking Bad for us to watch? And when they did that, Vince Gilligan was expecting like 40 minutes of footage and it ended up being about three hours. And even he was surprised that there was so much of Saul that they did in Breaking Bad. But again, that's over the course of, like you said, three and a half seasons sprinkled throughout. So you're right. There was never a Saul focused episode. He was really a character that they brought in as a means to an end or a way to get out of something. So he was surprised to see there was so much of him that was explored and to go with. And just little throwaway lines they may have thrown in here and there that they needed to adhere to for the series. But to answer your question about, you know, what brought them to this idea is even when they were writing Breaking Bad, the writers and the staff would joke about doing a, a Saul spinoff. Like they'd have these ideas and they would say like, well, we're eventually doing the Saul Goodman spinoff. Ha ha ha. Because he was such a character that it was so much fun to write. And because they didn't do too much deep diving into him and Breaking Bad, they felt like. Something about the character, there was more to explore. But something Vince Gilligan kind of put in perspective I thought was really interesting was he said that it wasn't until the opportunity for the show to actually happen present itself, they really hadn't given too much deep thought into it. And he said it was like, if someone were to ask you, hey, if you won the lottery, what would you do? You may give generic answers like, oh, I would spend it to travel, but you probably wouldn't invest much mental energy into thinking about it because it's so hypothetical. But then when it becomes a reality, it's when you sit down and think about things like, okay, is there actually enough of a world to explore with this character that we can do this? Some of the questions that they kind of had going into the show were, what problem will becoming Saul solve for the character that we have here? Because he doesn't start off the show as as Saul Goodman. Uh, He starts out as Jimmy McGill. And then the other questions they kind of had in the season one was, So how quickly does Jimmy McGill evolve into Saul Goodman? Because Vince Gilligan in the back of his head was thinking there's going to be people who worry that we're not doing it quickly enough or maybe we're doing it too quickly. And is that where the show ends? When he becomes Saul, are we done with the show? So these are a lot of things that they kind of had in their back of their mind as they were going through the show. The second question I had for you, Jerome, was just what did you know about Better Call Saul before watching the show itself? I pretty much know the characters – who are involved in the first season that includes Saul, Mike, Chuck, Kim. That's a lot of what I know. I didn't really know any of the plot elements. And unfortunately, I also know other characters who are appearing on Saul in future seasons because the Netflix thumbnail has spoiled uh, (laughs) this one major character. Yeah. But that's okay. Like, I figured he was going to be on anyway. So it's not, I wasn't like tremendously like disappointed by it. I'd be more disappointed if plot elements were spoiled for me, but if characters are returning from Breaking Bad, I'm not going to be like totally shocked by that. And uh, that's that's pretty much what I knew. I did not really know any of the plot elements that came with it. And, of course, I know that people want Ray Seahorn to get an Emmy nomination for Season 5 work. I know nothing about Season 5, but I know that people love Ray Seahorn and are really angry that she did not get an Emmy. 
That's true. And I'll be honest, until I started listening to the Better Call Saul podcast, there there is an official podcast that they did, just like they did for Breaking Bad, and I listened to those. Really good stuff. I feel like it's even better now in 2015. I feel like they're also getting a lot more people from the show on the podcast because I feel like 2009 or 8 or whenever they started the Better or the Breaking Bad one versus now, people are like, oh, you know, podcasts are a thing now. We know what these are. I did not know her name was Ray Seahorn. I always pronounce it Rhea Seahorn, like in my head, but it's like Caroline Ray. So I mean, I don't, I don't know if I'm right or not. <laughs> she, you are, because she, she herself appears on the podcast, and she is Ray Seahorn. So okay, we'll get into Kim a little bit, but I'm actually going to start our season recap with some of our returning characters. Of course, the titular character is Saul Goodman, played by Bob Odenkirk. And we actually start the series with a new concept of a flash forward all in black and white. And we get to see right away what happens to Saul post Breaking Bad as he's now living his life under the alias Gene managing a Cinnabon in Omaha, Nebraska. This was completely and totally foreshadowed in Breaking Bad. If you remember the penultimate episode, Granite State, when he and Walter hiding in Ed's shop in the basement and Walt's trying to do like one last kind of thing to maybe get themselves out of this or whatever. And Saul has pretty much resided that this whole thing is over. And he tells, well, Hey, I'm a civilian. I'm not your lawyer anymore. I'm nobody's lawyer. If the fun's over from here on out, I'm Mr. Low profile, just another douchebag with a job and three pairs of dockers. If I'm lucky month from now, best case scenario, I'm managing a Cinnabon in Omaha. And I actually had totally forgotten that line was in breaking bad. So when I listened to this, I had a nice little chortle because I knew that's exactly what happens to Saul here. Then we actually get to see in his home, he pulls out a tape of old Saul Goodman commercials, and he's very careful to make sure there's nobody watching him as he's he's living his life as the manager of a Cinnabon, very just unemotional, but definitely cautious. Like, you know, one little slip up and the jig is up. I really like this opening of the series and the black and white concept. And here we are in, in, in a Cinnabon seeing Gene managing. And uh, what did you make of all this seeing it for the first time? I think it's a great payoff to a line in the penultimate episode to have him say that line and then to literally start his own show that way, I think is, is perfect. And I mean, it's pretty clear that we're going to be coming back to these flash forwards at some point. It's just, you don't like we've said before. There nothing happens in Breaking Bad for no reason. So I have to believe that there is going to be some sort of a payoff to this. That they did, they didn't just show this to show Gene watching old VHS tapes. I mean that that would just not. I, it would be pointless because we know that he did survive Breaking Bad, of course. But I just I, I have a hard time believing that it would make any sense uh, to do that. But I like that we see Gene looking out always for people that may be trying to murder him. And there's even a little bit of a tease of that. So clearly he is a, he's a very paranoid individual. And I don't know if, if COVID can potentially affect this, but what if the series finale is Gene having to close the Cinnabon because all malls are dead? That would be a, a big time bummer. Uh, what I do like about this, though, is first, like I said, everything in this is black and white, but the character Gene wears glasses. And as he's watching the commercials, the television is in color in his glasses. So I thought that was a nice little touch. But the also great touch was that the corporation Cinnamon played along with this great. On the night of this episode on their Twitter account, they posted a wanted ad for their Omaha store. 
And uh, you you mentioned that there's this character in the Cinnabon that uh, Saul thinks is looking at him and maybe coming for him. And he's like, "Uh oh, the jig is up. But he ends up going right outside the store because he sees somebody recognizing he gives them a hug amongst that group. That gentleman goes to see was the now former but then current president of Cinnabon, Kat Cole, who herself has this great story of starting as a Hooters waitress, working herself up to the executive vice president of Hooters and then becoming the president of Cinnabon. So to get her in that role as a nice little Easter egg was a lot of fun too. And it's it's always nice to see a company like that when they're going to get some love from a show like Better Call Saul play along and give them whatever they needed to make Cinnabon seem like as realistic as possible and those nice little Easter eggs both within the show itself and on social media. And I, and I will admit to you, there's been plenty of Better Call Saul premieres or finale parties I've had that involve both fried chicken and Cinnabon. And Kevin, the, the best part is, is that, you know, this president clearly looked at Hooters and is like, you know what, these wings and the burgers and all that stuff, this is way too healthy. I need to go start a business where we can eat something that is even more unhealthy than this. Something like that. It's like one of those Dunkin' Donuts, Baskin Robbins, two for one combos. Yeah. It's like, yeah. finally, I can have something unhealthy like ice cream for breakfast instead of a healthy choice like a donut. So either way, uh, we then go back to the present, which in this this series is 2002, where Jimmy McGill, that's Saul Goodman's real name. And he he mentioned that it was his name sometime in Breaking Bad. He's a he's a struggling lawyer in Albuquerque, mostly getting work as a public defender, gets a check for people he defends there. You know, these are people who who can't afford a lawyer or are so guilty that no lawyer would take them. But here's Jimmy McGill doing it for the check. He he's living in the back room of a nail salon that doubles as his office, uh, and he's trying to leave this persona of Slippin' Jimmy, which he cultivated in his home area of Cicero, Illinois, just outside of Chicago, scheming and scamming with his friend Marco, who we get to see later. And we learn that he has an older brother who we'll talk about later, who he himself is a lawyer, helped Jimmy get out of a jam in Cicero, and uh, kind of as penance, Jimmy has agreed to move to albuquerque to try to clean his life up because his life was more or less over if he if he didn't move and his brother didn't get him out of this spine a nice little touch they have is he drives a complete shitbox of a car i think it's a suzuki esteem it might be a different brand of car but uh esteem is an intentional choice as a a lot of jimmy's self-esteem plays into a big role in his behavior uh both professionally and personally so a pretty down on your luck character that we get beginning here at the beginning of season one. So one of the things that I messaged Kevin is that as much as I think Vince Gilligan is a really good writer, I think this episode proves that Vince Gilligan is also a really outstanding director because he really takes his time to show you this world. And there, there's a lot of tremendous moments in, in this first episode, but one of my favorites is that Jimmy is making this very passionate defense. Like, He's somebody who, I don't know what his lawyer skills are, but the thing that we know about Jimmy and Saul is that he could talk a really good game. He could talk himself out of some really bad situations. And in this case, he's trying to defend these three. You know, it's 2002. In 2020, they are probably proud boys who are marching on the state capitol in whatever, uh, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So that's probably what they're doing now. But at this point, they were just potentially going to jail and he comes up with this passionate defense and the other lawyer just looks so bored and just could not possibly care any less about what's being said and then he slowly walks over slowly brings out 
a television with a VCR, slowly puts the tape in, and then we see what these young boys have actually done. And <laughs> it's really disgusting and really repulsive. And the look on Jimmy's face is so great. And the way that this is played out, I, I feel like a lot of shows would just not do this. But the fact that it takes so much time, it ends up being so much funnier. That's the other thing about the show I think that scene really illustrates is that Breaking Bad certainly had its moments of comedy, but Better Call Saul, the stakes are not nearly as high yet. So they can afford to have more comedy and more levity throughout the first season. And there are other moments where I'm going to point this out too. And I think this is just a real good tone setter for the show because it is part of Jimmy's character. It does tell a story, but it also is not like the end of the world either. Right. But I do love that he's giving this passion defense. They show the video and even he kind of holds up his, his hand like it's going to be fine. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a really great start. Just like going from the, the black and white to the very quiet courtroom. And he's basically rehearsing his defense like it's a performance in the bathroom gives you a great idea of who this character is and what he's really trying to do though, to try to get some money is there's been this news story about a gentleman named Craig Kettleman, who's a County treasurer. He's been accused of embezzling $1.6 million. He's trying to get them. He's trying to get them to uh, make him his lawyer. They don't go for it. They instead try to go with a big law form, which again, we'll get to in a little bit. This family is really incredible. It's him and his wife, Betsy Kettleman. They are convinced they are not guilty, despite the fact that they absolutely are guilty. Craig himself was played by Jeremy Seamus, who's primarily a stage actor. He had a small role in the, the movie Birdman. And Betsy is played by Julianne Emery, who's currently part of the main cast of Preacher, another AMC show. And the character named is a shout out to Betsy Brant, who played Marie in Breaking Bad. But these characters are wild. And Jerome, you told me that you had a theory about the Kettleman you want to discuss. Is now a good time to talk about that? I think now's the now's the perfect time to do it since you've introduced them. So I don't know whether this is conscious, subconscious, or unconscious, but this feels like the perception of Skyler is exactly who Mrs. Kettleman. I think this is who fans think Skyler is. Like it it's it's not quite like you know the Simpsons episode, Lemon of Troy, where we see the Shelbyville as kind of doppelgangers of, of the citizens of Springfield? It's not quite a one-for-one, one, but it kind of feels like maybe that's what they're going for in a way, because they've also committed fraud and embezzlement and things of that sort. But in this specific case, the wife is the one that is very clearly in charge. So I was wondering, is this like the writers responding to how people feel about Skylar. So they wrote this specific character because I don't know if that's even plausible, but that's, that's one of the readings that I had of it. That's very interesting. If that is the case, it never, ever came up in the show. And they actually did have uh, Julianne Emery on the podcast uh, on the episode, the final episode where finally Craig decides yeah, for, for the first time we see him be the one to take charge because it's been, Betsy running the show the whole time, convinced that we're not guilty, this, that, and the other. We're, ne- we're not going to take any deals, so on and so forth. And this is finally the jig is up, and he says, I need to confess this. It's best for our family, so on and so forth. And she mentioned doing a, a deep dive of real-life situations where there's these cases of embezzlement or whatever where people are so obviously guilty and are so obviously playing the role of trying to be not guilty Lots of character work with them, like her and uh, and Jeremy Seamus in real life going out to restaurants or coffee shops and kind of 
putting on the characters of this, but th- there was never anything explicitly stated about Skyler or, or anything of that nature. Just, it seems like it was, they had this idea of the characters and it was really Julianne Emery and Jeremy who fleshed it out. And you hear a lot about this talked about amongst the writers and everything else where they have these ideas for characters and then they have, and then once they see them come to life and how the actors play them, it gives them these new ideas so it's a great theory, and I can definitely see where you got it. But if that was the intention, that was never explicitly stated. That's fair. I, now, I'm not going to steal your bit about Craig Kittleman. I'll just let you say, what are your thoughts, and what did you call Craig Kittleman? Oh, I said he was probably the biggest cuck in television history. More like cuck Kettleman, am I right? <laughs> there you go. I said that to my friend Alex, who is – a diehard Better Call Saul fan, like to the point where he is an admin on their wiki. It's insane. Uh, but he, I said that to him, and he immediately sent me back a graphic for Better Cuck Chuck. So, uh, yeah, there's there's that too, I guess you can maybe say. But uh, that's neither here nor there. What is, though, is that Jimmy is really trying to find his footing in law as he's navigating his way through Albuquerque, trying to make it on his own. And uh, you have this... Hamlin, Hamlin, McGill firm that he's going up against. And there's a really great billboard stunt that he pulls that ends up leading to a lot of business for him, specifically with the elderly. And this is where he realizes that this could be his potential specialty. And that leads to him getting, uh, discovering this, this chain of retirement homes, Sam Piper crossing, who might be scheming the residents out of a lot of money by receiving their pensions and social security directly, uh, and this could possibly lead to a major class action lawsuit. So that's the big discovery. But just watching Jimmy McGill in the process of putting up this billboard and then knowing it would have to be taken down and hiring somebody to take a pratfall to make him seem like a hero from saving that person from certain doom and that getting him the press that he needed to get a lot of eyes on him to get a lot of clients. Seeing him work this way gives you just a wrinkle of how he would have been as the schemer back in his Cicero days. I think that it's worth pointing out that so many of these episodes do start off with flashbacks. And one of the ones that we get is him being slipping Jimmy and kind of one of the major pranks or one of the ways that they would uh, separate people from their money, so to speak. And I'm really glad that we got to see some of that and just to see who Jimmy was beforehand, because I think it's really productive, and I I know I've complimented Breaking Bad on their use of flashbacks, and it feels like Better Call Saul is using them even more, but I think it's in service of the story, and it's not that whole episodes are flashbacks, it's generally before the credits, and I think that that works out uh, tremendously well. I think it's, it's just to show us just who Jimmy is, that Jimmy was not a lawyer. The impression that you get is that he started very late in life trying to become a lawyer because of all the things that he was doing when he was living in Cicero, living in the greater Chicagoland area. And I really appreciated those flashbacks. And we do get to see a little bit of Slip and Jimmy in that moment. And I remember just watching that scene specifically. And as soon as he started climbing, it clicked in my head, oh, this is all bullshit. He's totally faking this so that he can become a hero and increase his business. So I kind of was able to uh, to see what they were doing right from that moment. But, I mean, it was just tremendously well executed. 
the the image which I'm telling Matt Waters right now that that needs to be the image for uh, this podcast episode because it will not get any better than just Jimmy McGill in that awful suit with the hair and the teeth and whatnot. It's it's uh, it's it's really really good and it was also a little bit weird. That so Jimmy McGill's as you mentioned one of the things he does is writing wills for people, and given the circumstances that we are in now, it's a little weird to be watching this first season and seeing a lawyer writing up wills for people and doing that as a business. A little weird, but again, even with the billboard, long before the days of Photoshop would be able, he has to actually go out, get his hair done, has to get dentures, has to buy a suit, all this stuff to get this billboard done in two thousand two. Nowadays, you could just pay some kid to Photoshop it up for you for 50 bucks and get that on a billboard. And it would have been a lot easier and way more cheap than having to go through all that uh, that extra expense to to stick it to Hamlin, Hamlin McGill. This is definitely a period piece because, gosh, like 2002 doesn't sound that long ago. But just the way technology has increased, it feels like a totally different world. I mean, all you need to do is just look at their cell phones to identify right. just how far away we are from that era. So we can talk about uh, Slip and Jimmy a little bit. Is There's a falling out with his older brother, and we'll talk about that more when we get to Chuck itself. But it results in Jimmy going back to to Cicero for a little bit and reuniting with his friend Marco, played by the wonderful Mel Rodriguez. And he has kind of this blowout of a week of scheming. And the way I kind of interpreted it was – you know, he the reason he left was to clean up his life and to try to win over his brother and win the respect of his brother because he loves his brother and realizes at the end of episode nine that that's maybe not going to happen. So he kind of goes back to see like, hey, is this old shoe? Does it fit as well as it does? Did I make a mistake in leaving? And he goes on this week of scheming with with Marco. And by the end of the episode, he realizes that New Mexico and being a lawyer is is where he wants to be. And it's because a lot of the voicemails from his elderly clients and the work he has to do and all that stuff. But I got to say, just watching him and Marco do the, the coin scheme, I could have watched 60 episodes of those two just doing their scams. It was just so much fun. And even Marco says this, like, you know, Hey, I just like watching you work, Jimmy, like it's his role model. I love watching that scam. And if that was the whole show, boy, I would, I would have not been upset about it. What we haven't really talked about is that Bob Odenkirk's background is comedy, even though I think the first line of his obituary is probably going to be about being Saul Goodman in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. A lot of what we know about Bob Odenkirk is the fact that he was a writer on Saturday Night Live. He had his HBO show with David Cross, which is tremendous and hilarious in its own right, but What Bob Odenkirk has done is that he has transitioned from doing a lot of comedy to doing dramas. And I think that what makes what made Breaking Bad so special is the fact that he was able to come in for one or two scenes, hit his marks and kind of get out of the way of the main story in a lot of cases. But now he's he's expected to transition to being the emotional center of the show. And I think it would be really hard if he was starting as Saul Goodman. I think starting him a few years earlier, not like a year, but a few years earlier, which is different from Breaking Bad, because Breaking Bad really only covered one to two years, maybe three years of time. This show is very clearly going to cover like six years or more. So we get to see a little bit of who of, of Saul before, before Jimmy. And I really like the finale. I think a lot of the Breaking Bad finales have just been really eventful, really big, really important. 
And this finale was just very quiet. It's more subtle. And I like this idea of him returning back because I think we always have those moments where we either we try to go home again or we try to reconnect with a with a former romantic partner and maybe some things happen and maybe you come to realize that you've outgrown this person or you don't want to be with this person anymore but you just had to you had to see what it was like one more time before moving on and making a final decision and that's kind of what Jimmy does Jimmy makes that decision and i think it is it is literalized his the passage of his old life dying is realized in the fact uh, that that Mel Rodriguez's character dies and it's this really stark moment and then when Marco dies it's it's both sad but it's also coming across as a realization that that Jimmy McGill needs to do something with his life and to just be the kind of lawyer who you know works for $700 a shot and is really struggling and he has a shitty car and he's stuck in the back of a nail salon like that like he realizes that he can't do that, that he has to do something more. And that's what I like about the finale so much is that the finale, it's not like this is the origin story and all of a sudden he is Saul Goodman, but you are seeing where the, like, it's like the transition is now beginning by the end of the season. Yeah. And I really like that that's encapsulated by the end of the, the finale where he went back to Chicago, his, he realizes his past is just that. It's a past that's behind him. It's something he doesn't want to go back to. His one link to his past there, because we also learn in a, a quick line that his mother has passed away. Now his friends passed away. A lot of what he did in Albuquerque was trying to appease and, and get the love and approval of his brother, which he feels like isn't going to come. And they had this moment where him and with the help of Mike, who we'll get into next, had all the Kettleman's money in their hand. And instead of keeping it, they uh, they returned it. Help me out here. Did I dream it or did I have $1,600,000 on my desk in cash? When I close my eyes, I can still see it burned into my retinas like I was staring into the sun. No one on God's green earth knew we had it. We could have split it 50-50. We could have gone home with $800,000 each, tax-free. Why didn't we? What stopped us? Me personally, I was hired to do a job. I did it. It's as far as it goes. Yeah. Well, I know what stopped me. And you know what? It's never stopping me again. And so we end season one with him kind of freed of all these things have kept him from letting loose and being the true Jimmy McGill in Albuquerque. And that takes us into season two. So I think you're right. This this more quiet but really powerful season finale was the right way to go. But it also ends a little hopefully with... Kim Wexler gave him a call, and there's another firm that may have some interest in him. So a really positive way to end season two for Jimmy McGill as we get a lot of his past in there, too. And one thing I do want to ask you, as as they do go back to Cicero, Illinois, which is right outside of Chicago, and obviously Bob Odenkirk himself is from Illinois. He's from Berwyn, Illinois, another area right outside of Chicago. How do you feel they encapsulated in this bar and with the character of Marco the essence of the Chicagoland area? I, I will point out to you that Cicero is right next to Berwyn, Illinois. I think when you think of Chicago, I think you think of it as as being a major metropolis. When you think of the suburbs, I think you think of smaller neighborhoods. Berwyn and Cicero are very different from like a Naperville. Naperville is generally ranked as one of the best places 
to raise a family in the country. Berwyn and Cicero, not so much. They are a little bit rougher. We'll say that. So it, it would make sense that a character like this could possibly be from Cicero or Berwyn because those are not the traditional Chicago suburbs as we see them. But I did like a couple of the, the details. I, I Obviously, Bob Odenkirk had to have some influence because there are a couple of very specific things. I don't think they shot this in Chicago. I They did not. <laughs> yeah, because I, I recognize none of this. And I do appreciate that they were in an alley because there are a lot of cities that don't have alleys. So good on them for at least finding an alley uh, to shoot in. I like the fact that Saul calls the Cubs the Cubbies. I think that's very Chicago-specific and not something that I think a lot of out-of-towners would necessarily do. And they drink old-style beer, which it's not good. It's a terrible beer, but it's very Chicago-specific. And that is a detail that I very much appreciated. And also, I mean, Bob Odenkirk has a very clear Chicago accent, so there was no getting around the fact that he was from there. But I don't know if Mel Rodriguez is from Chicago, but his uh, his Chicago accent was also very good. It was good in such a way where, you know the super fans from Saturday Night Live? Oh, yes. Like, I think that's what people think of as the Chicago accent. It really isn't that pronounced. So I appreciate that it did feel like a Chicago accent, but it didn't feel exaggerated like the super fans. Right, and I think they so they discussed this. First of all, Mel Rodriguez is not from Chicago. So I was really impressed with the accent he was able to do. And he said, you know, he's he can pick up voices. So it was really just a lot of like watching YouTube videos and things like that and picking up just kind of the, the affectations and things of that nature. And probably I'm sure he got some of the the slang or or you know, local parlance from your Bob Odenkirks and stuff too. But yeah, and it goes to you talk about accents and things of that nature. You know, they they discuss things like eventually you get to the point where people aren't doing the accent of the person; they're kind of doing the impression of the person. Like uh, talking about like most people don't do an impression of George Bush Senior; they do Dana Carvey's impression of George Bush Senior, like things of that nature. So I think he was careful to try his best to not do that. But I I know exactly what you're saying with the differences in it. But I was really impressed because. Uh, the only place I've been to in those areas is the Berwyn Eagles Club, and I got that vibe of the the paneling and things of that nature from this bar. So just from my my like very little experience in those areas, I thought they did a good job of it. I, I also think you you put it in contrast to the bar we see Jimmy in in New Mexico, uh, the more fancier bar he's on that that talking to that woman with on a on a date or whatever else. That the way that's lit versus just this bar being lit by all of the the fluorescent lights and things of that nature, I thought was a really nice compare and contrast to the two areas. There was one thing about this season that I really didn't like. That date that you mentioned, I'm really glad you actually brought it up because I had almost forgotten about it. But that scene was weird. Like him being out on a date with this person, with this woman. We don't know the woman's name. We know nothing about her. She's never really referenced again. I understand what they're trying to accomplish with the scene. It's something very specific where the breadsticks are being broken. It is meant to mimic legs being broken in the desert, which I'm sure we're going to get to. But that scene, like with her being there, it was really strange. It was shot in a very male gazy way, which is, which is also weird because the director of that episode was Michelle McLaren, who was not a dude. That was one of those scenes that, that kind of took me out of the show for a minute and I wanted to bring it up because, like I said, overall, I really did enjoy the show. But, man, that date seems weird. 
It was weird. And you know what's really interesting about that is there's a deleted scene on the Blu-ray. This is the only season I own on Blu-ray because it was like eight bucks on Amazon and had some cool little bells and whistles with it that I wanted to see. And the deleted scene in this, it was originally shot with actual dialogue between the two of them on this date. And when they watched it, they thought that there's just not enough focus on what we're trying to get across here. And there was some worry that maybe their conversation was going to have like a deeper meaning. So they decided to go with the way they did with the music over it and uh, really exaggerating the noise of the breadsticks breaking. So mm-hmm. it is one of those instances where it's shot one way and then watching it, they're like, ah, this doesn't really get across what we what we needed to. And so instead of like doing a different scene or whatever, they they did what they did with a little bit of a Band-Aid. So uh, I think there is something to your your statement there about it being a little bit out of place and maybe not the best choice to get a, this across. Mm-hmm. I'm a smart TV viewer, Kevin. That's I, I guess so. I guess so. You should maybe you should do some more TV stuff for this website. I don't know. Maybe movies. Maybe movies. We can talk about that later, Kevin. We we <laughs> had our segue plan, and I'm no, we're sticking to it. There's obviously a lot more Jimmy to get to, but I think talking about it connected to other characters is the way to do this. But the other big recurring character we get here is Mike Ermintrout, still played by the incomparable Jonathan Banks. At this point, he's simply working as parking lot security, a toll booth operator for the the courthouse that Jimmy's a DA for. So they have a lot of really funny rapport. He's a former Philadelphia police officer. We knew that from Breaking Bad. And as we would learn later, he relocated New Mexico specifically to live near his daughter-in-law and more importantly than that, his granddaughter. His son was also a police officer in Philadelphia who was killed. Mike feels a lot of responsibility and guilt for his son's life because the way he died was through this corruption in the Philadelphia Police Department that Mike himself was involved with. And there was this thing of like, as he explains it, his son felt like even just by not being involved, he'd be seen as a narc or a patsy or whatever else. So he almost had to be involved and that got him killed by his partners. And for Mike, it wasn't simply just relocating to be near his daughter-in-law and his granddaughter. But he also had to flee Philadelphia because he ended up killing the two cops responsible for his son's death. And that, to me, is actually my favorite episode of the season, episode 6-5-0, all about Mike and learning about his past. Just so much wonderful character work from Jonathan Banks here. And I think it adds so much depth to the character of Mike Ehrmantraut. And you get to see his his sweet side here with his granddaughter. And I'm glad that we got to see a lot more depth than Mike. I mean, he was... Uh, like a universal favorite of, of Breaking Bad fans. And a lot of people were really sad when he got killed in that first half of season five. So to see him get a second life here and get a lot more depth to his backstory is so great to me. And I love his rapport with Jimmy. We talk about our favorite episodes of the season and sometimes it's a little bit harder. But for me, with the bullet, this is one of my overall favorite episodes of Better Call Saul and my favorite of the season. I would agree that it is also my favorite episode of the season just because I think we have known so little about who Mike is as a person. In some cases, we know that he has a granddaughter. We know that he is trying to earn money for her. But I think now what we're trying to do is we're trying to kind of lay the groundwork. And I think this is what a prequel can do is that you can add value to characters that you had known previously and maybe you didn't get to explore as much. And in a way, I think we knew more about Mike than we did Jimmy, and for the first three episodes, Mike is almost nowhere to be found except for sitting and and trolling Jimmy. That's kind of what his purpose is in almost sitcom-like fashion, because Jimmy never has the right amount of tickets on his uh, on his on his parking ticket. So that's that's kind of how we get to know Mike, and we kind of get to explore 
him by himself, he does have some overlap with Jimmy. He needs Jimmy to be his lawyer and basically be a patsy to spill coffee so that he can get one of the cops' notebooks and uh, find out what they know. And yeah, I think he has this incredible scene in Philadelphia where he goes after the partners and, and kills them both. And it is a quintessential Mike scene because you get to see everything, just how smart he is, how crafty he is. He's not the best looking person in the world. He's obviously older, but you can see why he survived so long and been able to have a lot of success because he's just smarter than everyone. And he knows what to do. He knows all the angles. And we even get to see that when they are about to pull off this job as they are, they are trying to help someone with a drug dealer. Now, you, you can tell me the real actor's name. But I will always associate this person as being Colin Robinson from What We Do in the Shadows, which is a fantastic uh, piece of comedy. And the moment that I saw him, I started laughing. That's that is how much I associate him as being Colin Robinson. He is he's so good. He's so funny. Even uh, even in this episode specifically, he is so fucking fantastically funny, and he just has no idea what he's doing. And Mike basically takes out one of the other people without even without a gun and the other this very large gentleman just runs away so it basically becomes a two-man operation and it's great i mean i love what they do with mike in this season because what they're able to do with him is just make him a more defined character he is the very definition of shades of gray because he's definitely not a good person but he's definitely not somebody who is totally evil either. He has very clear standards. He has very clear morals. And I think that's really great to see. But uh, Kevin, you know, I, I know I like to nitpick with these shows a little bit. So I got another one for you. I just don't believe the cops are corrupt, man. I just, I don't know. Is that even possible? Ooh, that is, that is a uh, one. I don't know that I want to touch again, just very different lenses watching this uh, in 2020 versus 2015. Uh, the actor you're referring to, I his last name feels very Polish, but I want to say it's like Mark Prosh. So I knew him originally from The Office. I know he's obviously doing his own big thing with what we can do in the shadows, which you and my flooping the the pig co-host pretty much they tell me on a weekly basis I got to watch the show. I'll get to it. Well, the one question I always have is, is it do I need to watch the movie first or does it matter? You don't really need to watch the movie. In fact, you might you you almost might be better off not watching the movie because a lot of the first couple episodes follow the pattern of the movie. Okay, so I know him from his uh, his role as Nate on the last few seasons of The Office, and it feels like this character Price he plays is exactly the same character. So it feels like if you needed somebody in this role, you go to Mark, and you're going to get that exact character, which isn't isn't a problem. He does it he does it really well. And this is actually a connection that that uh, that Mike gets. He's able to meet this vet who also has ties to the underworld. And so he has to get his granddaughter a dog to have an excuse to continually go to this vet for tips, info, and eventually jobs. And that's how he gets connected to this man named Price. And yeah, it's funny to see this this uh, grizzled veteran cop amongst these these two other guys. One of them is gung-ho for guns. The other is, is this tall, big guy and... Uh, Mike's there unarmed except for with a pimento cheese sandwich and he's able to take them down. And then you see just later in the van, Mark only takes him. So now we got this vet in place. We have his connection to maybe getting some work that's 
outside of just the toll booth. And now he has a connection to, to Jimmy a little bit. So yeah, Mike Irvin Trout, someone I was so happy to see back, see, get some death and see him going forward and better call Saul. Jonathan Banks is great. Hot yeah. Take. yeah. And well, and he's also crucial to this because he gives Jimmy the tip about an experience he had back in Philadelphia. Cause the Kettleman's home, everyone thinks is ransacked. Uh, this character, Nacho, uh, may, maybe it kidnapped him and it was Mike who puts it into his head that it's possible that they staged this and they're, uh, they're camping out somewhere close to their home. And sure enough, that turns out to be true. And so Jimmy then feels like, okay, this guy knows his stuff. He can be, he has some insight that can help me out. And that grows them together and eventually gets him to call him for his lawyer, as you mentioned, all this sort of stuff. So really organic growing of this, of these two's relationships. It's been, it's been very fun to watch them interact. Yeah, and the impression that you always got in Breaking Bad is that they were business associates. They weren't really friends, and so to turn to to try to backtrack and make them friends would would just feel really unnatural. So I like the fact that there is clearly a lot of tension that exists in the relationship right from the start, because Mike is very much a rules follower, and Jimmy is very much not a rules follower. Absolutely. And then our last recurring character we get in the in episodes like one, two, maybe three is Tuco Salamanca's back. He's ran into at the end of episode one, thanks to this grift gone wrong with uh, Jimmy and these two skateboarders trying to pretend for a hit and run. They, they intend it to be for Betsy Kettleman to gain Jimmy's trust and take him on as his lawyer. But they end up hitting the Abulita of Tuco Salamanca. And I know you weren't a fan of him in Breaking Bad, but I got to say in the way he's presented here. At in this season of Better Call Saul to me is a far more believably intimidating character and a much more scary character than he was. And maybe he's just somebody who's better in small doses. But I thought Tuco, the way he was presented here, way better than Breaking Bad. Yes, I totally agree. I think that there are a lot of ways that this show is different than Breaking Bad. I'm going to highlight some other examples in a minute, but I think the way that Tuco is presented, it's just so much better because... He's not necessarily a protagonist, but him defending his grandmother, like the the two guys, I mean, they're assholes. Like they kind of deserve what they get. And even Jimmy, to an extent, deserves what he gets for, for trying to like rob this poor old woman of her money. I mean, it's just it's it's definitely a different dynamic. And I think it's so much better and comes across so much better. And Tuco also isn't just going crazy at the drop of a hat. It's just, it's so much better. And the other thing that I really like about this, and, you know, we may get into this a little bit more as we go along, but with the character of Jimmy, we also get his relationships with people seem to be better in some cases. Like, at the beginning of this season, he loves his brother. The impression that you get with Walter White is that he doesn't really love his family, but Jimmy clearly loves it and respects his brother at the beginning of season one changes by the, by the end, but it's very different than I think the way that external relationships are presented. The other thing is that he has a good relationship with Kim Wexler. Maybe he is interested in a romantic relationship, but there is clearly a friendly relationship where they respect each other, like each other, like being around each other. And I think that's also a good way of differentiating from Breaking Bad by changing the dynamics a little bit to where Jimmy, like to me, Walter White, right from the start, just came off as being incredibly unlikable. And Jimmy comes across as being much more likable, even though he's still an idiot and he still makes mistakes. 
it seems like he's at least trying to be a, a good person. Like this, there, like there's a specific scene where he is uh, with this woman who can't afford to give all the whole hundred and forty dollars. We see him get cut or a break, and you know we see the montage at the end, uh, uh, towards the middle of episode two, which I think is fantastic. It's a fantastic montage of him just working really hard, collecting all these. $700 checks and just representing these awful people and with the coffee and everything. It's so great. And that's the thing that I really appreciated is that they changed the show in such a way, they changed the feeling of the show in such a way to where it's not breaking bad. It's not trying to be breaking bad. And funny enough, we, we talk about Tuco. I'm going to bring this all the way around. The desert scene also, in a way, felt a little bit out of place because it felt like they were trying to put people in a breaking bad state of mind. And I'm not sure that I'm not sure that this show was ready for it in episode two. Maybe not, but I think it did achieve what it needed to with, with Nacho. Uh, And that's, that's actually a great segue into our new characters for the show with Nacho Varga. He's a member of Tuco Salamanca's gang played by Michael Mondo. He was never seen in breaking bad, but if you remember, Jerome, back in uh, season two, there's that scene when Jesse and Walt kidnap Saul and attempt to coerce him into representing Badger when he's arrested for selling drugs. And Saul is like on his knees and he's trying to pin the blame on an Ignacio or a Lalo. And uh, later it was condemned by producers of both shows that Ignacio is Nacho Varga. So name drop, but never seen. And it's this desert scene where Jimmy is able to talk with Tuco out of killing these two skaters person, basically talk them down to just breaking one of their legs each. And Nacho is so impressed with the way Jimmy handles himself and realizes that he, it seems like he has a place in the criminal world that he offers Jimmy a 10% cut of the 1.6 million from the Kettleman family of their embezzlement is Jimmy is able to get it for them. And it ends up that Jimmy gets nervous that the Kettleman's family may get hurt, especially their young kids, that he calls and does this like intimidation thing to try to get them to to scurry away. And then obviously this sours Nacho's relationship with Jimmy because Nacho himself gets arrested. And uh, so they go from being potential criminal buddies to Splitsville by the end of the season. And then Nacho pops up again in the end as a uh, part of the person who's doing the the, the deal with the pills with price that Mike is with as his bodyguard. So it's like, Oh, are we not going to see Nacho again? And then here he is popping up, but we get this new criminal face and I'm glad they freshened up and they're not just going with Tuco all over again. Uh, as good as he was in this, I'm, I'm happy to get a new character here and Michael Mondo does a very good job. Uh, and yeah, I guess you're right. Like maybe it was a little too early for that scene, but it did achieve what it needed to. And I did think there was a lot of genuine tension in there. And it goes to show you that Jimmy knows how to negotiate. And uh, it, it kind of plants that scene in his head of maybe there is something to this criminal underworld he could he could do with. Yeah, I really like the character of Nacho. I also like the way that we see him from both of the perspectives of our main characters. We see kind of how Jimmy sees him and then we see how Mike sees him. And it's very different. I think Jimmy perceives him as perhaps this really mastermind drug dealer. And Mike just sees him as kind of this two-bit drug dealer who's making his own deals on the side and is probably going to get himself killed. So I'm sure that's something that will be important later. And we know that the drug 
aspect of Albuquerque has to be introduced at some point. That's that's just the reality of the situation. And I think it's important that that that, that happens later on. But I, I think that planting the seeds in season one is probably a good idea because it's a it's a thread that you can carry throughout and whatever ends up happening in seasons five and six, I'm sure there'll there'll be a there'll be a payoff to that. And some returning characters will, will from Breaking Bad will undoubtedly pop up. But yeah, I really do appreciate the character of Nacho and the fact that he is he is much more sane, he's much more nuanced than uh than Tugo. He definitely was much appreciated. So I uh, I like that character, and I'm looking forward to to seeing him in future seasons. And then we go into three new characters in it in a section I've just labeled Hamlin, Hamlin, McGill. It's a law firm. We know Jimmy McGill is the name of Saul Goodman in this timeline, but no, he is not the McGill in this. It is his older brother, Chuck McGill, played by the incomparable Michael McKean. I adore Michael McKean. I love him in all the Christopher Guest movies. Clue was a movie I watched ad nauseum as a kid because it was played on Comedy Central so much. And I stand by this. Every single thing that Michael McKean does as Mr. Green in that movie, whether it's something he says or something he physically does, is funny. He is just a tour de force in that movie, and it remains one of my favorites to this day. So I was thrilled to see him play Jimmy's older brother, I think. Physically, it's a great choice for the character that he needs to take on it's it's perfect and i was interested to discover that this is a role that was done uh given to him through brian cranston because at the time mckean was performing in all the way which was a stage play about lyndon b johnson's first year as president with cranston playing the titular role and mckean playing J. j edgar hoover and they were casting for better call saul at the time and as uh michael mckean puts it there was a night they were about to go on stage and Cranston put the idea in his head of, you know, you should really play Saul's older brother. And he's like, wait, what? And then they go out on stage and Michael McKean was a fan of Better Call Saul. So he knew exactly what he was talking or I'm sorry, of Breaking Bad. So he knew what Cranston was talking about. And shortly after they gave him a phone call and the rest was history. So uh, before even getting the character, I was so excited watching this that Michael McKean was in this because it does give a little bit of that credibility with a powerhouse actor such as him. But I just there's so much of his work that I love coming into this. Uh, were you happy to see Michael McKean here? Yeah, Michael McKean is great. And here we have another comedian playing a dramatic role. And I think it's something that's worked for Breaking Bad so often in the past. And it's something that Better Call Saul is very clearly extending. And it's great to see him in a more dramatic role. And I just think the character is, is so different than anything that we've seen, not only in Breaking Bad, but in almost any prestige television show because he literally cannot be around electricity. So I'm sure I can't imagine how much fun lighting the scenes that Chuck and Jimmy have. I can't imagine how much fun that was. Uh, Um, Sounds awful. But, you know, they certainly, they, they love to challenge themselves. And the thing that I appreciate is that Mike certainly, or I'm sorry, Michael McKeon as Chuck certainly has his mental problems, issues, but we understand, we can see why he's a great lawyer. We can understand why he's good at his job too. And I think that's really important because I think just having him sit around in like that, that like it looked like an aluminum blanket. Like just having him sit around, 
I think that would be really boring, and I think that would be really uninteresting. But the fact that he is able to cite different law cases and read his law books and still have be cogent enough to understand what's going on and also be able to manipulate his brother and manipulate the situation involving his brother at the firm, I think it's a great character. And I, I think the Chuck and Jimmy scenes worked out really well. And I think that the fact that they start out in one place and they end the season not talking to each other, I think that's a great way to, to have a first season because you need to do some things in the first season without he saw Goodman at the end. And I think this is a really good like way of like pushing him towards being Saul Goodman because it's this idea that his own brother doesn't believe in him, doesn't want him to have this job and has basically been lying about it. Like you can understand why Jimmy Gill would, would break bad himself just based on the way that his brother treats him. And it also brings up the, the nature versus nurture debate. And like, is, is slipping Jimmy going back? Would he, is he going to go back to his old ways because he was going to anyway, or is it because his brother wasn't going to help him? I, I think it's very intentional. You have Chuck McGill and Howard Hamlin as these two dichotomous characters. And a lot of your perspective as the audience member is how Jimmy views them. And by the end of the season, your viewpoints is flipped a little bit of like, maybe Jimmy has it wrong or maybe Chuck isn't as great as we thought he was. And in fact, I think a lot of people probably hated him by the end of season one. And maybe Howard Hamlin isn't the devil like we all thought he was. But specifically for Chuck, as you mentioned, he suffers from electromagnetic sensitivity. It's obviously something that developed in recent years. And he's been on this indefinite sabbatical, they say, over a year from Hamlin, Hamlin, McGill. And you have Jimmy taking care of him, bringing him his groceries, his uh, his lantern refills, his newspapers on a daily basis, checking in with him, obeying his Chuck's demands for leaving all of his electronics outside, grounding himself, as he says, before coming in. Uh, and a lot of his time, he Chuck has been on the sabbatical. He's been spending a lot of his time trying to learn about his condition, talking to universities nearby and other connections he may have made in the law world to try to get some more information on it. And you can tell that even though he's trying to encourage Jimmy's practices, there's a lot of distancing going on. Like I think it's in the first episode, he's trying to help Jimmy think of names for his law practice and none of them include the last name McGill. Like you mentioned Wills, I think Jimmy purposely leaves some paperwork behind with Chuck knowing that Chuck's going to do it for him. But then when he brings him this Sandpiper case, Chuck really gets cooking and he really gets into it and he concocts this plan to get the hay, the case out of Jimmy's hands because Chuck's like, Oh, we can finally work together. And boy, does that make Jimmy excited to finally get to work with his brother as two lawyers on the same level working together on a case. And Chuck behind his back tells Hamlin, Hamlin McGill under no circumstances, take him on as a partner and tries to get the case out of his hands into Hamlin, Hamlin McGill specifically, because it is too big of a case for them to take on by himself. And Chuck, lays it all out there that I don't think you're a real lawyer. I think it's ridiculous that you would see us as peers. And man, does that really hurt Jimmy? Because we see that flashback in episode three where he is able to get Jimmy out of a bind as Chuck. And essentially, Jimmy loves his brother and wants his approval and wants his love. And he just doesn't get it. And again, that goes back to your nature versus nurture thing of if only Chuck would would treat him with dignity. And I, I get it. There's this thing with him where he where he doesn't believe people change and there's his past that slip in Jimmy. 
But I think we see throughout it, you talk about how it's important to see Chuck as a good lawyer. I think we see that a lot of cases with Jimmy too. And I think it's an instance where, yes, he thinks fast on his feet and maybe the people that he represents aren't have, have the best character in the world, but he's obviously someone who knows his stuff and obviously is able to think quickly on his feet. And that makes him a good lawyer and his brother just won't accept him that way. And I think, again, a lot of people end season one thinking, man, you know, fuck Chuck, so to speak. So I think that one of the things that, that makes Chuck such an interesting character is just the way that he's presented and the fact that the POV does this 180 degree switch, which I mean, that's a really hard thing to do in one season. And I think they're able to pull it off so well because I mean, Jimmy hates Hamlin and is trolling him constantly throughout. Mm -hmm. It's not just the billboard, but it's just throughout. But by the end of the season, like Hamlin kind of takes pity on Jimmy and I think that's that's really fascinating because I think we see that Hamlin maybe isn't such a bad person after all. And I think that's really important to do because the other thing is, is like the other thing I was wondering is like, why is Kim Wexler working for this person? This guy's such an asshole. And I think having that perspective change, I think really it really does help uh, and it makes sense. And Hamlin feels uh, he feels very familiar Again, like I said, a lot of Howard Hamlin, who's played by Patrick Fabian, he's Chuck's law partner, one of the Hamlins in Hamlin, Hamlin McGill, someone whose our, our perception of him is very much colored by Jimmy. There's this argument in the beginning where Jimmy basically wants to cash out McGill from the law firm. A lot of this is thrown back at Jimmy thinking like, does this mean you don't think he's going to recover or he's not going to come back? And Jimmy thinks they're kind of reluctant to let him go because he's their cash cow. Uh, and doesn't think that they have his best interest in mind. And then we also see a flashback where Jimmy gets his results for passing the bar, and we see but don't hear Howard coming and telling him that he can't work with them right now. And that's the same case for the future, and where Hamlin's telling him that you can't be a partner with us. And what we end up learning is, is that he basically had to do Chuck's dirty work. And so that, to me, also plays this dynamic of, Supposedly they're partners, but it seems pretty obvious to me that Hamlin feels like he's under the thumb of Chuck and because he has to go along with his wishes and his demands and all this. Uh, and so and I think maybe part of him not wanting to cash out is a fear of Chuck of some sorts. And what we see the big the big turn with with Howard is at the very end when after Jimmy realizes what Chuck did and he says, I'm not going to be helping you anymore as he brings this list uh, of things that Chuck needs to to Howard and says, this is on you guys. Now you're responsible for this. And Howard is genuinely impressed and has this sense of admiration for Jimmy realizing just how much work he's putting into taking care of Chuck during his sabbatical, especially when he realizes that Chuck doesn't either like Jimmy or has no interest in helping him with his career. And yet Jimmy is doing all of this on a daily basis for him. And Howard you know, he's he wants to keep his his uh, deal with giving this money to Jimmy for bringing him the case. And gosh, you even get the sense that maybe he wants to give him more money and he just can't because a deal's a deal and that's not how things work. But he promises Jimmy that they're going to do they're going to stick all these duties with with uh, with Chuck and take care of the best they can. Uh, and so I like that, too, that you get this flip of your perception of Hamlin and uh, and Chuck by the end of the season. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty great. 
you almost have to marvel at the quality of the writing and all the credit to Vince Gilligan and, and Peter Gould. It seems like Peter Gould is kind of more of the uh, the showrunner this time. And yeah, just what they were able to do this time, just uh, super duper impressed with with all of that. And I guess there's one character, just a, just a minor character to talk about, right? So minor, yes. Kim Wexler, another attorney at Hamlin, Hamlin McGill, played by Ray Seahorn. First episode, you learn that there's some relationship with Jimmy. It's it's this very purposeful, will they, won't they, or have they, have they not dynamic. But they go to each other for advice and assistance. And if nothing else, they're definitely friends. You mentioned, you know, why she's still working for Hamlin. He's an asshole. And even Jimmy asked her that at that point. We learned that HHM essentially footed the bill for her to go through law school. So she feels some sort of, uh, she feels indebted to them. But I think she probably also knows the real Howard more than Jimmy does. Uh, and we see even Jimmy trying to offer to start a law firm with him, go on her own, all this other stuff. But again, she feels this uh, this debt to HHM for helping her put her through this. But it's her who who gives Jimmy a lot of advice. She's the one who goes to him and in so many words says that he should take the the payout for the Sandpiper case from HHM without saying that, hey, it's your brother who made this uh, this arrangement with Howard, not Howard himself. And so you have that that dynamic between Kim and Jimmy going into this. And I like that it's purposely vague here. And, uh, and I like that she's such a great character. She knows her stuff too. And she's, she's awesome at her job. She's a wonderful character to watch. And obviously we're going to be seeing a a lot more of her in future seasons. So I I went down an IMDb wormhole and uh, was, was trying to find out more about, about Ray Seahorn. I, I could not believe that she was 43 when this show started and I was looking at through her IMDb, and I know that she's done a lot of stage work, but I was incredibly surprised by how little prestige TV and movie work that she has done over the years. And, I mean, she's great on the show, and it was just really surprising to me. And obviously Hollywood is very stupid and sexist, and there are any number of reasons that she wasn't getting the casting that she deserved, but... It was funny because one of the things one of the things I noticed when she first opened her mouth and started talking is I was like, her voice sounds like Mira Sorvino. And then I looked at her IMDb and she actually played the same character that Mira, Mira Sorvino did in a Romy and Michelle's sequel. So that was weird. And she's just very good. Like she's just very good in this role, feels very comfortable. She has great chemistry with Bob Odenkirk. That's obviously hugely important. And yeah, I was just even in the small small performance that she got in this first season. It felt like she was a natural put in this role. Absolutely. Yeah. She, she was really a, a diamond in the rough. I think she just auditioned and blew them away and they hired her. And it's obviously opened up a whole new world for her. And something I really liked about her and Michael Mondo, who played Nacho, as they talk about in the podcast, how on their days off, most of the times they would still come to the set because it was like, okay, we I guess we could stay in our, our temporary homes in New Mexico or we could go and watch a master class in acting on a day of the set with Bob Odenkirk and Michael McKean doing scenes, seeing these world-class directors and, and people do their craft. And so she she took this opportunity not only to play this role in this big show, but obviously to to be a sponge and just soak up any chance she could to learn from being on a prestige show, as did Michael Mondo. And I, that gives me a whole world of respect for them to – as uh, as actors and people who take their craft very seriously. So I always appreciate that when I can learn that about an actor. 
that's really my big notes for I have some some trivia notes for for season one of Better Cross All, but I really enjoyed watching this. It is the same universe as Breaking Bad, but feels like a totally different show on its own. And I know to some people that might seem like a negative because I think some people see it more moving a little bit more slowly or not having the same sense of drama or whatever. But to me, this is just so well written. A lot of got a good nuance in here. Uh, this to me was such an enjoyable watch. We are watching it back over again. I'm excited to go into the other seasons. But for you, Jerome, someone watching season one for the first time, what were your overall thoughts? I think in some ways, I think even though the last couple seasons of Breaking Bad are iconic and some of the very best episodes of television that have ever been produced, in some ways, this, the first season of Break- Better Call Saul, I almost called it Breaking Call Saul, Better Call Saul, in some ways, I think this first season is more easily watchable because there isn't this dread of, oh my God, who's going to die in some horrible fashion. So in some ways it was easier to watch. I think that there are certainly some moments that didn't quite work for me, especially I think that second episode is, is pretty rough, but I think that what they were able to do overall in telling their stories and being lighter, being more comedic, having some good montages, I, I just I really respected a lot of what they did. The switching of the dynamic between Hamlin and Chuck might be the greatest magic trick that this writing staff has ever pulled off because they did it in the first season. And I, I really love the finale for all the reasons uh, that I've mentioned before. But, but Kevin, we have to talk about the long con that you've been playing on me. You pulled a Marco and a Jimmy. I to- Why is it that I totally forgot about this until – until now, like I, I don't I, know, you you, you, mentioned... you 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 can tell the story. Okay, so do you know what this actor's name is? Let me look it up. Yeah. Okay. So while Jerome is looking this up, back in 2012, I visited Chicago with Jerome for some for some wrestling events in the area. But as I'm wont to do, I came into town a day early and I said, you know, I've never been to Chicago before, so let's get some deep dish pizza. And something else I really want to do was go to a second city Chicago show, which they just so happened to be uh, performing that weekend. So I believe it was the Friday evening before we went and it, it was such a wonderful experience. It was so funny, such a great show, but there was one particular gentleman of the cast that really stood out, especially through this, uh, this positive guy song that he would sing that led to this great thing that Jerome and I still remember mention often to each other. And it's a gentleman I've seen many times before in, in commercials and other shows. He played uh, William Henry Harrison's like great, great grandson or something in an episode of the office. Uh, that's the one thing I remember from, from TV. And then in an episode of better call Saul, where he's really trying to figure out what am I going to do? And ends up on elderly law. He deals with a gentleman who wants to, have his house secede from the U.S. so it can go under its own labor laws. And then another gentleman comes to him with patent law over this toilet that has words of encouragement as you go to the bathroom that he discovered as a dad was great for his kids, but Jimmy thinks sounds too sexual. Oh, yeah, that's the way. Gosh, you're big. You're so big. My goodness, look at you. Fill me up, Chandler. Put it in me. Chandler's my youngest. Loves it. Huh. Give it to me, Chandler. I want it all. Mmm. Ah. And that gets him very mad. 
and, and the actor that we enjoyed so much from the second city act, he's the one who plays the guy in the toilet. So Jerome feels like my long con was to get him to watch all of Breaking Bad, El Camino, and now get to Better Call Saul just so I could expose him to this very scene, which is really funny. And uh, I I completely forgot that he was the gentleman involved in this. So I, I, I will deny that it was a long con, but I don't think that's going to convince you, Jerome. Tim Baltz is uh, the name of the actor. He has since gone on to, I think he's perhaps best known for BJ on the Righteous Gemstone. And he is fucking fantastic on that show. You want to talk about a cuck? That is the very <laughs> definition of a cuck that he plays on that show. But uh, Tim Baltz is so good. And as soon as I saw him, I had to text Kevin. I was like, Kevin, <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> jo- Joliet's own Tim Baltz. Absolutely. So uh, I, I felt like we just we had to mention that because nobody else probably even cares. But for Kevin and I, this is like a significant moment in our relationship. The fact that he was on an episode of Better Call Saul, it's like an eight year payoff, which <laughs> you don't really get anymore. So here we are. It's eight years later and we are still talking about him. And now we're doing it on a podcast. And yeah, I mean, we may never go to Second City again, Kevin, because the world might end, but we, we will always have that memory. It's true. and But it's also been so rewarding to see him. Like, anytime I see him, I'm like, I feel like, yeah, that's the guy I saw. He was so funny. Like, it was one of those things where I left it, and I'm like, now I understand why so many of these people get roles on Saturday Night Live or become actors, because they're just so good. But this guy, to me, stood out as someone I was, like, actively angry he wasn't doing more work and making a million dollars elsewhere, but... Uh, just looking up, I remember I've seen him in Veep and Drunk History. So a lot of stuff that I watch and like he's been in. And it's every time I see him, I do like the Leonardo DiCaprio point to the screen. I'm like, I know him. Uh, <laughs> what a meme. What a what world. A, what a meme. And something I did forget to mention that I think is uh, a little important is the little differences between uh, or little things you learn about. Uh, for One thing that we see is that in episode three in the flashback where Chuck is bailing Jimmy out of his uh, Chicago sunroof incident in uh, in Cicero, which I don't know. Uh, I I didn't remember that this was like a payoff where you're like a Chicago sunroof. What the hell is that? And then you learn what is in the last episode. Uh, but in that flashback scene, Chuck is wearing a wedding ring. In the present, he is not wearing a wedding ring, and uh, there's no wife to be found in his home. And if you remember in Breaking Bad, Saul makes some comment about having two ex-wives. And then in the final episode of this, as he's going on a rant to at the old folks home, both explaining the uh, Chicago hot box or Chicago sunroof scene. Uh, he also mentions one ex-wife. So putting together a little bit of a timeline here with uh, with some things. I would venture to say, Jerome, I'm not that you are not someone who would have committed a Chicago sunroof. It seems really messy and like a terrible idea. And you know what? It was also something where I forgot there was kids in the car when it happened. So when he said it again, I was like, oh, no, because uh, there's this mention where Chuck says, like, you may be even under like pedophilia charges for what you did. Uh, more or less, Jimmy takes a shit in the sunroof of a car of uh, someone his ex-wife is now having sex with. But he he does mention that it was before it was his ex-wife. So uh, but unfortunately, he did not see the kids in the car when he did this. And so that's that. Uh, some other tidbits I have about the season, a theme of the season that they wanted to have was every episode end with the letter O. So you see it five O bingo, Marco, Uno, Miho, Nacho. The one episode that doesn't have that is episode five, which is titled Alpine shepherd boy. 
they were going to originally call the episode Jello because as you see in the episode, Jimmy puts an ad for himself at the bottom of the Jello cups the elderly folks in the home have, but they were unable to secure the rights for the name of the episode. So it's the one and only episode that does not end in O. And it's also the first episode, I believe, that is neither directed or written by someone who worked on Breaking Bad. So that's a fun little tidbit for that. Uh, there's also a lot of sets that were used, again, from Breaking Bad. Uh, the house owned by the man who wanted to secede from the U.S. was actually found when they were looking for the home for Gretchen and Elliot to use in the Breaking Bad finale. So they remember that house and used it again here. Uh, the hospital that was used when Chuck is uh, – he has this electromagnetic attack and he's hospitalized, was used several times in Breaking Bad, uh, like the scene where the one twin is crawling out of the bed towards the uh, towards Hank, uh, who's standing outside, uh, where Jesse's visiting Brock, Jesse and Gus's conversation, and the nurse who comes in to tell Jimmy to stop messing with the lights and calls for security is the same nurse who kicked Jesse out of the hospital when he came to see Brock. And finally, the nursing home that Jimmy ends up soliciting is uh, ultimately the same place that Uncle Tio stays in when uh, the brother brothers are visiting him and they have the uh, the Ouija board and things like that. So lots of reuse sets here, but it's all these little things that keep everything together in the same universe without being too totally overt. Yeah, Albuquerque has very clearly been good to this universe, as we've probably seen every nook and cranny at this point. But I, I definitely, it definitely feels like Albuquerque is bigger and I think part of that has to do with the fact that we're kind of driving around more. It's It feels a little more spread out. It feels like we're in downtown a lot more. And it feels like in a way that they have a bigger budget because they're able to do a lot more shooting outside as well. That's something else that uh, definitely comes across. And yeah, I mean, I just I was tremendously impressed with the way that they shoot things. I think you can see the improvements in technology just in a couple of years because I think this show feels even better shot and produced just from a from a camera standpoint than Breaking Bad. Yeah, I think there's a lot of little things where I'm like, man, do I like Better Call Saul better than Breaking Bad? But uh, also in my mind, I'm like, well, consider that they learned a lot of mistakes from Breaking Bad or they had a lot of time to fine-tune their craft before getting a Better Call Saul. So in some ways, if you feel that way, it makes a little bit of sense because it's it's going to be more polished just because there's been a lot of lessons learned from from Breaking Bad. So uh, I think that's going to do it for our season one recap of of Better Call Saul here on the Real Bad Podcast. We'll, of course, be back next month with season two. But before then, Jerome, let's hear some plugs and other things you have going on for uh, the Entry well, Real World Well, website. Kevin, there's something important that you forgot to mention, the fact that that uh, Jimmy McGill makes reference to a very important movie at some point in this uh, season of television. That's right. Well, you can tell us about that and uh, why it may be I was reminded of it so soon after watching the season of the show. So there is a scene where Jimmy goes into the law firm and is uh, is mentioning and quoting the movie Network, which is really – it's not ironic, but it is quite coincidental because Brian Cranston – has gone on to perform as Howard Beale in a live production of that that show Network. And it's also interesting, Kevin, because Network is one of the 100 movies that I have written about on EnterTheRealWorld.com. You, you can go and check out about 50 reviews at this point is about what I've done, and it runs the gamut from Star Wars to the MCU 
to a lot of older movies, including Casablanca, Network, among others. So that is what you should be doing. About three to four reviews get posted each day, or I'm sorry, each Each week. Each day, no. (laughs) I'm not you, and I'm not you. Um, Wow. And wrestling in the Chikara and when when that was a thing. Uh, so yeah, three three movie reviews a week. Uh, definitely go and check that out and uh, see all the hard work that I put into this list. Kevin, as we are recording this, I have 63 reviews written and movies ranked. And I have the other 37 movies that I have yet to do. Those have already been, uh, been marked up and uh, they will be ranked. And somewhere towards the end of the year... There will be an article that reveals the top 100 in order, going backwards backwards from 100 to 1. Network will be very high on that list. I wonder if this is intentional, but they have Jimmy make a lot of pop culture references. Like, it's Showtime, folks, that he says in the mirror uh, is a all that jazz reference. And then, of course, he and Marco talking at the end of the season about, oh, I thought you'd be Tanner like, uh, like in Lawrence of Arabia. And they start quoting that movie a little bit. I'm like, man, Jimmy, uh, Jimmy watches a lot of films and uh, other things is what I've what I've learned from this show. When do we get the in-universe Saul Goodman movie podcast? Because there aren't enough of those. (laughs) Absolutely. I would I would listen to it for sure. Uh, As for myself here on the, the real world website, I've got my Adventure Time podcast, Flooping the Pig, I do with Brad Garoon and Justin Houston. We're getting pretty darn close to the end of the Cartoon Network run of the series, and then we'll get into HBO. And then that's kind of a bit of uh, on a little bit of a stall right now. So we might investigate some other Pendleton Ward stuff that he did. But uh, decisions have yet to be made as the rec- as we're recording this very podcast. We'll, of course, catch you up on today on Flooping the Pig. And you can listen to the archives of that. Listen to the archives of myself and Jerome discussing Veronica Mars on that podcast that we did. And then uh, myself and my friend Ben Lundy did all of the television series Lost. So check all of that out here on the website. And if you feel like following me on Twitter at K413 is the place to do it. So Jerome, thanks as always for discussing this. This has been a lot of fun, continues to be a lot of fun, and I'm ready to jump into season two. I am certainly ready to jump into season two whenever that comes around, because like I said, this is such an easy watch and uh, I'm genuinely excited to see, uh, to see where the show goes. Yeah. And now that we have the whole universe laid out in this probably a little bit longer episode than usual, we have just, the plot to fall, and that'll be a lot of fun to go with. And uh, we appreciate everybody for listening. And we will see you next month with season two of Better Call Saul.